um, by a lot of the medics. Oh, okay, cool. And um, uh, and um, I don't know where I was going with that. Well, we'll get to it. Oh, this this is a talk that I had actually given some years back to as a CME to the medics, and so I dug it out, got rid of some stuff, and then uh, in the end, I added some stuff um, that's from a slide deck from the hospital. Uh, because I've been involved over the years, multiple permutations with uh, developing a sepsis protocol um, at, uh, at the hospital. And uh, so there is some um, renewed efforts at the hospital uh, to really focus on sepsis. And so I uh, put some slides from that slide deck at the back that we'll, we'll talk about. So um, sepsis, is just you have an infection, but when you're septic, that means that your infection has progressed to the point to where your body's no longer able to uh, mount an appropriate response to it. So anybody who has an infection can become septic uh, if your body is unable to uh, tamp down that infection or if it goes untreated. Um, and when you get to the point to where you're septic, again, it's kind of an, the overwhelming part of your immune system and you're uh, heading down the road where you're no longer going to be able to, to compensate anymore. Um, so one of the things that I want to instill early on is just the, uh, that sepsis is a, is a big deal. And there are uh, a lot of cases across the U.S., and there's a lot of cases here locally of uh, people who are septic. And uh, this is just some some data that I just put in from yesterday. So uh, we have 1,600 patients a year diagnosed with sepsis uh, just here at St. Joe's. And so, you know, uh, over, a, over 100 a month uh, that are diagnosed with sepsis. And it uh, remains one of the leading causes of death uh, at St. Joseph. So 150 deaths a year. So, um, you know, more than, more than 10 uh, a month. Uh, so it's, it's a big deal nationally, and it's a, it's a big deal uh, locally. Um, and what I, what I want to uh, demonstrate is that... Uh, Based on those numbers, we know that there's a, a high prevalence in the U.S. and locally, so big numbers, but also of those people, there's a high mortality rate. And if you think about all the resources we put into uh, teaching you guys how to recognize and treat uh, an acute myocardial infarction or even ischemia, if you think about all the resources that we put into your guys' training, uh, it seems a little lopsided um, when you uh, consider heart attacks versus sepsis. So in the 60s, when you didn't, when there was no treatment, you would admit them to the hospital, you give them a little morphine, and they either made it or they didn't, and so the in-hospital mortality rate was 20 to 50 percent. Now, with all of the interventions and the medicines uh, that we have, you know, you can see we've had a significant impact on uh, mortality, 
with it being uh, in the three to 10% range. And, um, uh, and just as in the 60s, if you, it's, it's amazing to think that if you see somebody who is having an acute myocardial infarction um, and you did nothing, uh, their mortality rate is going to be 50%. So there, there they are, they're having an ST elevation MI um, and their mortality is gonna be 50% if you don't intervene. So that's a big deal. And it's a big deal because uh, the mortality rate is high and we have some pretty effective therapies to, uh, to keep them alive. So it is a big deal. Um, but if you compare that to sepsis, you know, uh, even today treated, your sepsis mortality rate is still uh, getting up to that 50% range. So you're saying, you're talking about with sepsis, your mortality rate is going to be as high as somebody with an untreated MI and also the number of septic patients and people dying in the hospital far exceeds how many we're seeing with the myocardial infarction. So why are we not putting more resources towards helping you guys understand sepsis and what you can do to, to intervene? So, uh, and if you consider, you know, if you look at the mortality rates of uh, other big causes of death and things that we uh, attribute to being uh, high mortality, even ruptured AAA, um, you know, stroke, uh, those things, they, uh, you know, they fail to compare with sepsis in terms of the number and the mortality rate. And so uh, that's why I think it's important that you guys learn this stuff and that you, and that you understand it. Um, so um, sepsis is mostly diagnosed in the emergency department. 60% of the cases are diagnosed in the emergency department. Um, and uh, of the septic patients that we see in the emergency department, EMS transports the sickest ones, and that just makes sense, right? That uh, they're, they're going to uh, be to the point to where they need you guys to ride the bus uh, for them. And, uh, and as it says here, the mortality rate of the patients transported by EMS who are septic is four times greater than those who don't arrive by EMS. So you guys are gonna see septic patients and you're gonna see the sickest of the septic patients. And, uh, uh, what, what are the indicators for you all in the hospital that a patient is septic as opposed to just having a low-blood infection? Like Excellent question. Thank you for segueing right into that whole, uh, <laughs> and, and we'll get to that because I want you guys to know that and I want you guys to know the, 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 the numbers. And, um, you know, just to kind of answer your, your question, the, uh, we'll talk about what our septic criteria is. But for you guys, you're, the way you're going to identify in the field is going to be real simple. Do they have a fever? Are they tachycardic? Are they uh, tachypnic? and what's their blood pressure. So that's all you guys need to know. And uh, just like you look at an EKG and that's all you need to know, simple vital signs are all you need to know. Uh, and uh, you'll, you'll be able to identify whether you feel like you got a septic patient and that uh, will, as we'll talk about, will set up a whole cascade of events downstream from, from you. So, um, 
you know, when I looked at studies uh, talking about sepsis and, and EMS, you know, the studies show that uh, we in EMS don't do, a, don't do a good job with septic patients. We don't do a good job identifying and we don't get a, do a good job of uh, treating them. And we'll talk about how important fluid resuscitation is. Um, but again, the study's looking at that um, all of the patients didn't get treated with enough fluid and uh, less than half of them got, got any fluid. So that's a simple intervention that we'll talk about that you guys can do, recognize it, and then at least uh, get the fluid resuscitation going. Um, so uh, this is what my objectives are for you guys. So we, uh, we talked a little bit already about the scope of the problem, that's the why. Um, and then what I'm gonna uh, spend a little bit of time talking about, because I think it's important for you to understand, is that sepsis is on a continuum. And uh, SIRS, or the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, is early, the earliest phase, and then they will develop into sepsis, and then what we call severe sepsis, and then septic shock, and uh, uh, multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. And so that's kind of the spectrum, that's kind of the continuum, and everybody will end up down uh, the end of that spectrum if they're, if they're left untreated. And you'll see them in different areas of the spectrum. And distinguishing as to where on that continuum they are will dictate what we'll do at that point, how aggressive we'll be, and, um, and we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk um, uh, after the definitions just about, uh, again, how do you diagnose it and how do you treat it and how do you manage it. And I'm going to talk about uh, not only what you guys do, but what I do and what they do in the ICU, just so you have an understanding of kind of what, uh, uh, what our goals are and, what, and where we're going with this person and, and why. And, uh, and I'll talk to why sepsis has uh, traditionally been treated in the intensive care unit, but now it's been moved out of the ICU into the emergency department and now uh, out to you guys by extension. Um, and then I'm going to talk at the end a little bit about uh, bringing in local as to what we're doing with locally here at St. Joe's with code sepsis and, again, how you guys play a role in that. Um, yes, Rob. Your lecture years ago, I don't know, five years ago even maybe, mm -hmm. that you gave the same lecture. And you impressed the same, did a good job of impressing how critical this problem is, how many people we actually see with sepsis. And it's funny how over the years we kind of drift into it seeming like maybe it's not as important. Do we start the IV? Do we give a ton of fluid? You know, we tend not to. And we, so we've kind of even drifted, even though we understand it. We had a great lecture that talked about it. Um, I don't know why it's human nature to take, uh, you know, an ST elevation MI more seriously. Like, it maybe it just seems more impressive. But to, as you guys listen to this and you think about it, like, I, I think you will drift away from remembering just how critical sepsis is if you're not careful. If you don't just try to think about it every time and be aggressive with your, your treatment that you're going to describe here. Because we tend to drift away from treating this as aggressively as we should. Maybe because we just... We see too many people with uh, UTIs, or we see too many people that we think are just kind of sick, but we don't really recognize the sepsis. So, 
Yeah, and I think I think uh, I think sepsis just isn't as sexy as having an MI, and um, uh, and I think having an MI is a lot more sexy, and um, and I think um, uh, you know when somebody's having an MI, you look at them and you you know the uh, primal reptilian core of your brain says this dude is sick. He's diaphoretic, and he's got that look of death on his face, and uh, he's struggling. And you know uh, at a very visceral level that this guy is sick. One of the challenges with sepsis is that they may not present that way. The ones who are sick as snot and they're, and they're going down the tubes, those are easy. Those are, those are the easy ones to identify. They're the easy ones to know what to do about. Uh, and what to do with, and you hit them hard, and you hit them up front, and it either sticks or it doesn't. The ones that are hard, and the ones that we lose, and the ones that we're trying to save by having a whole sepsis code, are not the ones who come in with sepsis tattooed on their forehead. Um, you know, uh, to give an example, there was a um, somebody that we all know in the emergency department because she works at the hospital. Uh, sweet, sweet little lady. And she came in, and um, she was septic. And uh, it's one of those where you review the chart, and you're looking at all this, you know, what the sepsis criteria, and objectively looking at the chart, it's got sepsis written all over it. The problem was she's sitting up in her gurney, apologizing. You guys are so busy. I'm so sorry I'm here. You know, that's okay. That's okay, dearie. Don't worry. I'm okay. And and her number suggested otherwise. And she coded on the floor and died from her sepsis. And those are the people that we need to save. And those are not going to be the people who look like the MI, sick as snot, dying in front of you. But their mortality rate is 50%. I'm telling you, they're looking and they're talking to you. But if they meet criteria, their mortality rate is 50%. As if you are just blowing off this acute MI. Um, so... There's some cognitive dissonance between the person who's having an MI and the sweet little old lady who's apologizing for being there, even though this gal's going to die uh, at the same this guy who's having an MI is, even if I totally ignored him. So uh, you bring, a good, bring up a good point, Rob, and uh, I think that what he said is a very important point, and you guys have to understand that about yourselves, and that, um, you know, uh, MIs are sexy, and they're more obvious to you, um, but you've got to use your prefrontal cortex instead of your amygdala, and remember uh, what I'm telling you here so that you can make the right decision. How was that? I'm pretty proud of that. That was a good... <laughs> That was a good one. <laughs> that wasn't even part. That was bonus. That wasn't even part of this. <laughs> um, so the point of this um, slide is just to reiterate what I was saying before: that if you if you have an infection, there's all kinds of ways that your body will mount a response to go after that infection, and. Uh, and sometimes that can, be, uh, that can be good, and that's what gets you over the hump, and that's what clears your infection, because uh, people do get infected, you guys do too, and your body's able to clear it, and it doesn't, get, uh, doesn't progress. 
um, but sometimes you can't for a variety of reasons. And sometimes in spite of your body's uh, best attempts to combat this infection, with this whole cascade of inflammatory uh, molecules and uh, your immune response with your CD4 uh, and 8 cells, and all of, all of that that comes into play, um, if you're septic, it means that that's not enough and that all of that stuff is being overwhelmed and that a lot of... Uh, uh, that becomes its own monster, uh, the whole inflammatory response. And as we've kind of seen with uh, COVID and the cytokine storm, that uh, you get over your infection, but then it's your immune system that drags you down. So um, sepsis involves a huge inflammatory cascade of events that have, that is what incites this uh, downstream uh, cascade of events of sepsis. So again, this one I'm going to talk about now, SIRS, sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, a multi-organ uh, dysfunction syndrome. And not to complicate matters, but just so you know, this is kind of traditionally how we've categorized things. And this is how CMS categorizes things. And this is how uh, Hospitals get reimbursed is based on this. This is how hospitals get dinged, which is based on this and whether it's been recognized and, um, uh, and acted upon appropriately. And it is uh, relevant. Each one of these categories is relevant because, as I said, um, we would intervene differently uh, based on this. The... So even though this is how it's categorized, just so you know, there's um, all these other societies of uh, critical care and uh, all of the academicians who work on sepsis, they use a different system. Um, and so you may see when you're reading that they're talking more just about uh, sepsis and septic shock, essentially. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, but we're we're gonna we're gonna talk with this because this is what this is how we think about it and this is how we're using it. Um, so the systemic inflammatory response is is just the way that your body responds to an infection, but it responds the same way to anything that causes inflammation. So trauma, pancreatitis, um, uh, uh, anything that will elicit an inflammatory response will give you the same thing, um, and and that is fever, elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, and elevated white blood cell count. Um, so you guys won't know about what their white count is, but you'll know about these things, and you need to be alert for those things. Um, the difference between um, SIRS and sepsis is you have all of those things, but now you've identified a source of infection. So it's SIRS with an infection. Uh, and that just means that it's not related to pancreatitis or trauma or something else. It's related to an infection. And if you have, if you have uh, those parameters and an infection, then it's, then it's uh, sepsis. And uh, the most common cause of sepsis is, uh, is pneumonia um, and then uh, a UTI um, and then cellulitis. 
skin infections. Um, and sometimes you may not identify what the source is, but uh, you'll find out on a positive blood culture. Um, severe sepsis is when you have all of those things. So you've got the you've got the systemic inflammatory response, you've uh, identified a source of infection, now they're septic, and what defines severe sepsis, if you have those things, and you have some alteration in organ dysfunction. And the, uh, the most common one that you may notice just from talking to somebody is they just seem a little bit altered. They're just not perfusing as well, and they're just a little bit goofy. They're a little bit confused. Um, you know, the, the little old lady who's brought in by her daughter because she just seems more confused, you know, dollars to donuts, she's going to have a UTI. Um, so uh, uh, when, we're, when we're looking uh, in the emergency department, we're using a lot of our laboratory values to determine what their renal function is like, um, what their liver function is like, what their perfusion is like. Um, but in uh, uh, you know what their what their uh, urine output looks like and how uh, well perfused they are. So, Sepsis is uh, organ dysfunction, and that uh, organ dysfunction can be related to uh, hypotension too. The, the difference between severe sepsis uh, and septic shock is again the hypotension that places them in shock, but the difference is the in, uh, in septic shock the hypotension is not fluid responsive. So if you're gonna be sick and you're gonna have a fever uh, and you're sweating and you're not eating and drinking and you, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why you are going to be dehydrated, hypovolemic and your blood pressure be low on um, because of those things as well as just the vasodilatation that happens, and happens with an infection. And then if you give those people fluid you'll be able to get their blood pressure up, you correct that hypovolemia, uh, and they're good. That was severe sepsis, not septic shock. But if you give them fluid, and you're not able to get their blood pressure up, and they're therefore not fluid responsive, and you're unable to fluid resuscitate them, then that's because that whole inflammatory cascade is going on, and they are, uh, as a result, vasodilated and they're unable to constrict their vasculature so they're unable to get their blood pressure up because they're so far down that continuum they're they're beyond the tipping point and they're going down the tubes and they're no longer able to compensate with just your with your help with with the fluid um, And then uh, if you remain in that state, in that septic shock state for uh, long enough where your organs are being hypoperfused, uh, then you're going to go into multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. And so one of the first things that's going to shut down is your kidneys. Um, and then, you know, it could be your lungs because you're an ARDS or it could be uh, shock liver or... Um, uh, your blood cell line, but a whole host of things, and and that's just you're you're on your way out. When you when you get to that point, it's uh, depending on where you are on your in your treatment, 
you're going to make decisions about if you're early on in the treatment, well, let's try to treat this thing and get over it. Or if you've been treated and you're heading down this road, then, you know, the, the cat may be out of the bag and uh, you may not be salvageable. How, how rapidly do you expect people to respond to your fluid treatment? Uh, yeah, good question. And uh, typically, uh, it can be pretty, pretty uh, quickly. Um, you know, um, and that kind of relates to um, how fast you give the fluid because how fast they're going to respond kind of depends on how fast you give the fluid. So how much and how fast? Because as you know, when you give IV fluid, that's going to, uh, most of that fluid is not going to stay intravascular. It's going to seep out into the inter interstitium. And if you are all inflamed, everything's leaky, and it's going to just leak out that much faster. So if you're giving their fluid too slow, it's just going in and going out. And you're never going to be able to see whether plumping those blood vessels up, uh, improving your preload, improving your vascular volume, whether that made a difference or not. And so uh, it, that part gets a little bit tricky. Uh, you know, I uh, always uh, like recalling a study where it was in the military where they took young guys and they wanted to see how much fluid you can give them how fast before you put them in heart failure. So young, athletic, healthy guys, uh, military, um, and they gave them four liters of fluid in 15 minutes, I think, and they could not put them in heart failure. So if, if the pump is working, if things are working and, and you're a young, healthy guy, you can really compensate for a lot of uh, fluid bolus because your capacitance vessels are very stretchy. They can take up that volume. Your heart can, can handle the stretch and that increased uh, volume load. But that's not true of old people, and it's not true of uh, old people with weak hearts, and it's not true of old people who have diastolic dysfunction uh, or even a younger person who's had long-standing untreated hypertension and now their heart is really stiff and uh, their vessels are very stiff and you give them a little bit of fluid. And it, for every old person, when you, uh, their, their vessels are like PVC pipe. They don't move much. And, uh, and that's why you, you notice that they're that their systolic blood pressure is up here and their diastolic blood pressure is down here, it's because the blood vessel is not flexing with each heartbeat. And so it's like PVC pipe. So you can fluid overload them in a hurry if you give them too much too fast. So um, the answer to your question is it depends, you know. Um, but if somebody is in septic shock, you're going to be pretty hard pressed um, unless they've got an EF of 10 or 15 percent uh, so that their heart is really weak, which could be, which it could be when they are, um, you know, overwhelmed with sepsis, nothing's working right, including your heart. Um, you, can, you can still fluid overload them, but you're going to be really hard-pressed with somebody who's in septic shock to put them in fluid overload if they are... Um, uh, you know, with a leader or something like that. And so that, um, that whole question about how much fluid you get and how you judge fluid responsiveness and whether you need to give more or less, 
that is kind of the crux of this whole sepsis management. So if you don't know, I don't either, you know, so don't feel bad. Uh, and we'll talk about how, um, what we kind of do to try to try to figure that out. Um, and uh, it, it might, it might take a little while, uh, and this is something we spend a, a large part of our time toying with when we're managing somebody with sepsis. If we give them fluid, did they respond to that? Give them a 500 cc bolus, did they initially respond to that? And then it kind of teetered off, oh, okay. Then they're fluid responsive because they responded to that little bit of uh, fluid. Uh, and then, uh, then their blood pressure went back down because it just got redistributed. But if you see that little spike after a 500 cc bolus, you know, 500 cc's ain't much. And if you give it too slow, you're never going to be able to, to get it in the vasculature to see if it responds or not, you know. So if you give them a 500 cc bolus and they're hypotensive and you see a little response, then you're like, oh, yeah, maybe what this guy needs is just more fluid. So... Um, how much and how fast kind of depends, but I mean, that's the basic concept. Um, I have a question for you on the long, the how much and how fast. How long does it take for someone to develop these type of infections? Like, how much of their organs get involved after two days or a week? Or is this like happening in six hours? Or And, uh, and it varies. Um, it varies by... Uh, how good of a host are you? How good is your uh, immune response, um, in particular uh, related to how old you are? Um, and what was, what was the inoculum size? Is it a little bit or a lot? And what was the bug? Some bugs are, some bugs, um, you get E. coli in your blood, you get Neisseria in your blood, uh, you get, um, pneumococcus in your blood, you'll go down fast and you go down hard. Um, and so this, that can develop over the course of hours. Um, if you have a more indolent infection um, where it's kind of been brewing at a low level for a while, um, or you got a bug that uh, is not as aggressive, um, you know, it can, it can uh, go over days. And then it seems like... Um, what you, what you typically see is that somebody has had this stuttering course for a while. They've been at home and they've been maintaining. Grandma hasn't been acting right, but, you know, she rallies and she's been like that for the past few days. And all of a sudden today I went in there and she's gorked out on the couch. You know, so they, uh, you can maintain for a while and your body is able to stay on top of it and, um, and keep things at bay uh, losing ground a little bit until you kind of reach that tipping point and boom, then you crash. So you'll, you'll often see a clinical course like that and it won't be quite so linear. Um, so that's kind of what we're, we're talking about, but um, in order to treat it, you got to identify it first. So you got to know what the criteria is. You have to have that index of suspicion. And the two things that probably matter most are fluid resuscitation and early antibiotics. Um, and uh, for us, it's determining what we think the source is and trying to come up with 
what the appropriate antibiotics, so give it early and, and give it appropriate. Uh, that's probably what matters the most. Uh, if you really want to um, uh, trim it down as to what the most important part of it is. So when they, when they uh, come to me, they're, and the concern is for, is for sepsis, they're going to get a lot of stuff. They're going to get a lot of blood work. They're going to get all the imaging. They're going to get uh, urine. Um, uh, they're going to get their x-ray. And, we're gonna, and they're going to get Q5, 15-minute vitals, whatever it takes to really stay on top of their vital signs. Because what we're looking for is where they're at, but also what the trend is. And that... Uh, uh, and in something like this, where time matters, it's really important to be on top of it, uh, such as your fluid resuscitation, is what I'm doing enough? What's their blood pressure doing? Is it going up, coming down? What's their, what's their pulse ox doing? Have I given them too much fluid, and now I've put them in failure, and now they're hypoxic? Um, so uh, the continuous monitoring is key. And we talked a little bit about this, you know, the most common sources are going to be uh, uh, pneumonia um, and urinary tract next and then sepsis next. And so those are, or cellulitis, so those are all things you kind of can get a clue just from looking at the person um, and, and, and be able to put them in one of those buckets. So sometimes you get an idea just from seeing them what the source of their infection is. And when we evaluate them, and if it's not one of those things, the most common cause when you can't identify it is oftentimes it's in the belly. They have diverticulitis, they got a perf bowel, they got appendicitis, they got cholecystitis. Because um, when we're talking about sepsis, the majority of people who uh, are in septic shock are the older, over, 30, over 65. The majority are septic shock. Not everybody. Um, you know, there was a uh, uh, young guy, was he in his 30s, who came in not too long ago, and he was in septic shock and died in the ER. Um, he was diabetic, and um, he had, uh, and so diabetes is another risk factor for uh, developing sepsis because your immune system is compromised. And he, he had just bumped his shin and had a little cellulitis that they were trying to treat at home. And I think um, one of the family members was um, a tech at the hospital and uh, so kind of thought she knew what she was doing, trying to manage this uh, at home. And by time... Uh, they realized that he was getting worse and not better. They came in, and he was in septic shock, and he had uh, that bump on the leg that was cellulitis, was now necrotizing fasciitis, and his CAT scan was quite impressive with it being uh, how quickly it spread over the course of hours. And so there was nothing to do for him. He ended up dying in the ER. So young people, um, his only risk factor being diabetes, uh, they, they too can get uh, septic. But anyway, so bowel is something to look at. The old people look for pressure ulcers. Um, endocarditis is not an uncommon um, cause in our patient population. 
Do you guys like stories, or uh, am I am I being like Grandpa Wakey, uh, telling you stories? <laughs> cool uncles have the best stories. Yeah, because uh, talking about the endocarditis, I mean, just a just an, an anecdote. Um, God, I can't remember who the medics were who brought this gal in, but uh, they should they should get a letter of accommodation because I can just imagine what the scene was like when they showed up there. Um, got a call on a young uh, gal uh, in her 20s who was uh, miscarrying. And so they showed up, and there she is. She's got this, um, this dead uh, fetus hanging from between her legs, and she is, looks like stink. Um, she's pale, diaphoretic. Her heart rate's 145, barely has a blood pressure, gushing blood. Um, and they just cut the cord and ran and brought her in. And uh, her pressure was, uh, you know, in the 60s, even the 50s, and she was not maintaining. She was just moaning, pale as could be, um, and just blood, blood pouring out. And so uh, uh, tried to get a central line in her. Do you guys know what central lines are? Yeah, so, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about those because they're very important in the management of sepsis. And so, essentially, it's getting access to the vasculature right in front of your atria uh, for two reasons. One is so you can measure the pressure there, but also you can give whatever you want right in there and give it now. So, um, uh, it's a very important tool for uh, doing resuscitations. And, um, and so I was focused on that because we couldn't get IV access on her. Um, I put an IO in, and while they were using the IO, I was trying to get a central line in. Um, and I'm looking with the ultrasound, and there's just a little vessel. I got it right away, but I couldn't thread the wire. And that's when I noticed she had a zipper in her chest. So she's young, she's in her 20s, but she's got, um, she's had open heart surgery at some point. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's kind of weird. Um, and meanwhile, so I couldn't get access. We had an IO. Um, one of the stellar nurses was able to get a peripheral access. And so uh, I stopped what I was doing and went to go try to stop the bleeding by um, uh, pulling her placenta out and, and massaging her uterus to try to get it to shut down because you can feel it was big and bulk, uh, boggy. And uh, by that time, the uh, OB doc showed up. So her and I, uh, I just went fishing with my kids the other day. And um, we were down at the, we, uh, we had gone fishing, we bought some worms, and then uh, we went out uh, fishing the other day. And when you open the tackle box, we forgot about our night crawlers in there. And you know what rotten night crawlers smell like? Uh, it stinks really bad if you don't. And that's what this placenta smelled like when we pulled it out. It just reeked, uh, the kind that makes you want to vomit, it smells so bad. Because um, she had been carrying around this rotten fetus and placenta for, for a while. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, but pull that out and uh, you can externally massage your uterus, feel it kind of shrink down and um, 
kind of attenuated the bleeding that way by getting getting that out, and then went back to trying to get a central line in her again, um, and then was able to get it in the left IJ because that was big, uh, nice and big. And so uh, at this point, we have her on the massive transfusion protocol because um, that's what's going on, right? She's bleeding out and because uh, that's how moms even today die, and they used to die uh, uh, of that all the time. Um, and so anyway, you know, massive transfusion protocol, and we, we still haven't got any blood, so we have no idea what her blood count is because we can't get any blood. I got some and put in the central line in. That got hemolyzed. I got some more. That got hemolyzed. And the reason why I got hemolyzed probably is because she's in DIC, which is um, this uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is just what happens when you are either septic or you have trauma or you're bleeding out like this. Um, and uh, so anyway, got that in, got all kinds of blood products, uh, finally got a blood count back, and her crit was low, um, but uh, she was, her pressure was still in the toilet. And then, uh, we get the chest x-ray to look to see if, uh, my line is in the right place. And it is. And that's where we come back. This whole story comes back to this. So, because what her chest x-ray showed is she has these little like marbles everywhere in her chest. And those are, uh, the, septic emboli, which you typically see from either Lemire syndrome, which is septic thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular, or from endocarditis. So what was interesting about her was she was trying to die two different ways. She was trying to die because she was bleeding out, but she was also trying to die because she was septic. And we didn't, didn't appreciate that at the time. And we had given her all this blood and couldn't figure out why we couldn't get her blood pressure up. And it was because she was septic from endocarditis. And that was why she had a zipper on her chest because she's a drug user. And that's why we couldn't get any IV access. And uh, that's why I couldn't get a central line in was because of her previous surgery. Um, and she's still using, and that's why her fetus is dead. Um, so it all makes sense in retrospect, but at the time, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't know, but once we recognized that she was septic and then started putting her on pressers, then finally we were able to get her blood pressure up and, and then we were able to fix her. Um, and she ended up, uh, surviving to breed again. I don't know. I forget how that wasn't her, uh, I think that was her sixth or seventh drug baby, I think. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, you asked for it. You wanted, you wanted a story. Um, and that was one of my sicker patients uh, in a while. I mean, there was even more to the story than what I told you that just made it uh, really challenging. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned before, um, the two most important things is adequate fluid resuscitation and treatment of antibiotics. Our, our goal is that when they show up in the emergency department and we identify them as septic, that uh, we try to get uh, the right antibiotic in them within 45 minutes. Um, and as I said, earlier, earlier the better. The earlier the antibiotics, the better. Yeah. I, you've talked a lot about trying to find the source of the infection, and I'm not sure if you're going to get into this, but uh, how much time and effort 
does the help if we put into, if we put that time and effort into kind of digging deeper on trying to figure that out, like in route to the hospital, so that when, when we hand off at the ER, like, hey, this is what we suspect is the, sor the source of the infection. I mean, does that help you guys out? Or are you still going to run your tests and definitively? So um, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked because I think it, uh, it even has broader implications and something that I think is uh, uh, something that you guys will continue to refine throughout your career is that critical part of translating what you have learned and what you know to the people in the emergency department. That is a critical juncture. That's a critical voltage drop of information because uh, you know how it, how it goes. You know, uh, you guys, you were in the house. You saw where they're living. You heard the story. You, you saw the squalor. Uh, you come in. You have, all this, you have all of this information about that that we will never know, that only you know. You come in, you give report to a nurse who's kind of half listening, and she's going to go take her 30-minute break. And so she tells the nurse who comes, who's coming in, what she knows. You know that little game where, you know, you look at this picture and you tell this guy, and then it goes around and comes back to you? Well, I'm that guy on the end. I'm the last guy to get it. So by the time I go in there, I don't know what the hell, you know, what really happened. So uh, I would say that, you know, continue to reflect refine your report uh, and what is, and you'll learn what's, what's clinically relevant. Um, but I will say that uh, in particular with, with this sepsis is that if you guys identify it in the field, if they meet criteria and you call in and you say, we're coming in with somebody, I think he might be septic from his pneumonia, that is going to put this patient on a completely different trajectory because we're busy. We don't like to think too much, you know. So if uh, and we're all guilty of anchoring bias that if you tell me you think this guy is septic from pneumonia or that this gal is bleeding out from uh, her vagina and that's why she's hypotensive, I'm going to be going down that route until at some point. I realize, oh shit, that's not actually a story. This is the story. So you guys have uh, a lot of influence in terms of where we're going to go initially with this patient. So if you think they're septic, you need to say, I think this person is septic. And if you have a reason to believe that it's pneumonia because you were at the house and the wife says he's been coughing up this, this rusty colored sputum for three days, uh, and now he developed a fever, you know, I, I think it's, it's uh, important to relay that information. The only caveat I would give is, and it's not so much for ALS, but, um, but probably more for BLS. One of my pet peeves with uh, reporting is uh, you don't know what's going on and you don't know what this patient's diagnosis is, that's okay. That's my job to figure that out. Your guys' job is to know what the story is, get your initial numbers, get the ball rolling, 
get them to me as quick as you can. That's what you need to, that's what you need to know and that's what you need to do. So if you're doing report, don't be trying to tell me what the diagnosis is if you don't know what it is, but do tell me why they called you, who called you, who was at the house, you know, what they looked like, what the house looked like. You know, I want, uh, I need your accurate report of what you guys saw. I'll make the diagnosis. But if you got an idea that you think this guy's septic from his pneumonia because of that story, then, and you know that by doing so, by telling us, that's going to put us down this pathway, that's critical. So I, I would say, yeah. But don't let that be your report, <laughs> I guess is my caveat. Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I think a thorough story is always better. Yeah, start with the story. That's all you're really, that's all you are um, obligated to do. If you want to get a bonus point, a smiley for the day, and um, uh, say septic from his pneumonia, that's cool too. Um, so... This kind of uh, is where it all started for us in the emergency department and, again, by extension, you guys. So back, back in 2001, this Manny Rivers came out with this study that showed that if we identify these patients in the emergency department as being septic and we did this sepsis bundle, which was this early goal-directed therapy uh, in the emergency department, we made a significant impact in mortality. So it went from 46 to 30%. And the number needed to treat for that intervention was six. So for every six people that you did this to, you saved one life. That's huge. That's a big deal. So you're saving one out of six people who come in in septic shock by doing this. And we already talked about 750,000 people in the U.S., with having sepsis, you can imagine this was a big deal. This study was a big deal. And um, one of the implications of this study was that all of this early goal-directed therapy uh, was all stuff that was traditionally done in the ICU. But now he showed that if you did all that stuff and did it in the ER, you can, make a, you can have a great impact. So suddenly... Uh, this all got shifted to the emergency department. And the reason why was because, as we've already talked about multiple times, the earlier the better. So this was, this was a real phase shift in the management of sepsis. It was that study. And this has gone through multiple uh, permutations. And there, as I said, there was a sepsis, there was a, a, a sepsis bundle. There was multiple things that happened uh, during... Uh, that you did as part of that bundle in the emergency department over six hours. Uh, and then what all of the studies have been doing since then over the last 20 years is trying to tease out what are the essential parts of that intervention that really mattered the most. Because some of the stuff that was in there probably didn't matter that much. So they were big on doing transfusions if they were low. Well, that part probably didn't have that much of an impact um, and so that is not part of it anymore. But again, kind of going back to um, what I keep saying is the thing that mattered the most was uh, giving fluid, getting the blood pressure up, and getting the antibiotics uh, on. Um, 
So, you know, they took, the, uh, they took that study. The initial part was this surviving sepsis campaign. And, and by doing what he did, uh, actually did have uh, a significant impact on, uh, on mortality. And so we've been refining that over the years. And so, again, that was what they were talking about, given pressures, given measuring your central venous oxygen saturation, which is what you do with this. Everybody would get a central line. You do a blood gas from the one that was in here measuring. So those were all types of interventions they did. And, um, uh, and we've been teasing out what probably matters the most. Um, and... And so this is just what I was talking regarding fluid and central line. One of the ways that we sort that out is by putting that line in, measuring the pressure here, and that's how much pressure is the heart seeing, and that tells us the preload or how much fluid the heart is seeing that it has to work with to pump around. To pump around. And so that is probably our best measure, our best objective measure, to be able to determine how much fluid you give. Some people are going to need a liter. Some people are going to need 10 liters. How are you supposed to know that? Um, and by measuring their, their pressure is how you do that. And this is kind of just a chest x-ray. And, and I actually put it, put it up to uh, kind of uh, to your point when we're trying to figure out how much fluid we give him. It can be kind of, it can be kind of tricky. There's a lot of things going on in this chest x-ray. He's got a, a lingular pneumonia. Um, he's got a big heart, meaning that um, he probably doesn't have, uh, he's probably got a weak heart. Could also mean that he's fluid overloaded. Um, he's, he's starting to show some markings in his lungs, concern, consistent with him being fluid overloaded. So there's a lot going on here. And so how do you sort out uh, what is what? What's related to pneumonia? What's related to his fluid? What's related to his heart? Um, and this is where the central line goes. And you can see that there's... Uh, coming from the right IJ, it goes and it ends right here. And so it's measuring the pressure right here that the right atrium is seeing and is then going to uh, uh, pump out and about. And then that's where your meds and fluids can get delivered right there and you can, you can check the, the pressure. He's not intubated yet. And this is, of course, a, a pacemaker. So you know that he's, got, he's probably got um, uh, heart issues. Not true. How else can you tell if you're fluid overloading somebody? That's when you haven't given them enough. So um, that's, that's answering your question about um, how do you know how much fluid to give. Um, it's based on their responsiveness. So you can give them 500, give it you know, over 15 minutes, check a blood pressure before and after. Did it change? Woohoo! yeah, they're fluid responsive. That means they need more fluid. Give them another 500, you know, uh, check it. Did it did it change? Yeah. Woohoo! A little bit more. That's how you do it. So it's uh, you give a bolus and then you check a and then you check a response. And that's how you know they're going to if they're going to be if they're fluid responsiveness or responsive or not. Um, so you're going to keep doing that until what? Until it either works or you put them in heart failure. And you're going to know that they're in heart failure when they 
oxygen sats are going down, they're having more respiratory effort. So as you're fluid resuscitating somebody and you're checking their blood pressure to look for responsiveness, you're also keeping an eye on their respiratory status. How's he looking? How's he breathing? Is he breathing faster? Is he having more trouble breathing? Are his sats dropping? Is he sounding more ronkerous? You know, am I putting him into fluid overload? So that's how you're doing it. So you can do all that from the back of the rig. You don't need my fancy central line. Uh, uh, R meaning your EMS protocol? Yeah, no, uh-uh. Okay, um, so the way I read the protocol is we want to give a patient two liters before considering vasopressors. What would be the reason for not using them sooner if we have a really hypertensive patient? Well, and uh, so that's a good question. Um, and I'll answer it two different ways um, because it may be that you give it right up front. And I do do that. You know, when I go in and see him and I'm like, this dude is sick as snot. He's going, he's going to die. Then it's do everything right now. Get the fluid through the peripheral line. Get me set up with the central line. Get the, you know, get the, um, uh, uh, get the line set up under pressure, you know, uh, we're going to put a central line in, we're going to put him on vasopressin and norepi, we're going to get everything going right now because he's dying, he's actively dying. And you got somebody who's actively dying, do it all and, and do it do it now because um, clock's running out. <clears throat> if, if it's not do it all now because he's actively dying, um, then the only way you're going to be able to distinguish as to whether somebody has severe sepsis or septic shock is whether they're fluid responsive. They may not be septic shock. They may just be severe sepsis. And the way you're going to know is you're going to give them fluid and their blood pressure comes up, boom, I'm done. So by definition, that person doesn't have septic shock, has severe sepsis. How do you know the difference? You give them fluid and you see if they respond. So the the right answer technically is give them fluid first. Did they fluid respond? Okay, you're good. Now you know how to treat this. You treat it with fluid because they have severe sepsis. If they don't respond to the fluid, well, now you know they got septic shock, and now I need to treat them for septic shock. So I don't know if that answers your question. That, that makes sense for the reasoning, yeah. Um, so... This this guy here. Yeah. So uh, in terms of if you suspected acute THF exacerbation along with everything else, did you adjust your food? Yeah. Well, so one of the one of the other subtleties and that we've kind of talked a little bit about is <clears throat> they're probably going to need um, a lot of fluid. The young people, you can dump it in, and you're probably going to be okay. The older people, they're probably still going to need that fluid, but you're going to have to give it slower because, um, because kind of as I uh, alluded to earlier, when you're older, your heart's stiffer, your vessels are stiffer. Um, so you, you uh, make a water balloon and that balloon expands and it can fill that. But if you try to put that same amount of water in PVC pipe, it's not going to be able to expand. So you... Um, uh, and that's, that's a challenging management uh, part of sepsis is, 
is how much fluid and how fast you give them. But if they, if they are hypotensive and uh, I'm pretty aggressive about giving them fluid because as I've said in all of these studies, one of the areas that we fail is that we don't give enough fluid fast enough and early enough. So I'm gonna err on the side of potentially over-resuscitating somebody. And because what's my backup plan with this guy if I give him too much fluid and uh, he's now fluid overloaded? CPAP. CPAP or put a tube right down in here. You know, so, uh, <clears throat> so I would rather err on the side of over-resuscitating people because I've still got, I can manage their hypoxia. Um, but if I under-resuscitate them and they continue down the continuum of sepsis, I've lost my window of opportunity. Um, so kind of just reiterating what we've talked about, uh, what early goal-directed therapy talk, taught us was to be more aggressive earlier on um, and that both in the field and in the emergency department, we probably are not aggressive enough. Um, and as the uh, care of the sepsis patient has moved from the ICU to the ED, uh, it's also moved to you guys to, uh, to be able to recognize and initiate the, and the management. So know what the sepsis criteria is. Uh, it's real simple. It's what's their temperature? what's their heart rate, what's their respiratory rate, and what's their blood pressure. That's real simple. Um, uh, and if you, think they, if you think they have it, particularly if they're hypotensive, if they're not hypotensive, you know, you don't have to go crazy on the, with the fluid. If they are hypotensive, then, you know, uh, don't give them a 250cc bullus. That's a little cup. Yeah, it's not going to do anything. You know, you got to be aggressive about it. Um, and, uh, and kind of, as we talked about, if you're bringing them in and you think they're septic, when you're calling in say, Hey, you know, I think this guy is, and, and know what you're saying. Hey, I think this guy might be septic because he's febrile and tachycardic, or I think this guy, uh, might be in septic shock because he's febrile, hypotensive and hypoxic. Um, so if you know those things and you use the correct terms, you're going to get a lot more, um, they're going to take you as being legit if you're speaking the language and you know what you're talking about. So know, know the difference between the two and use that language when you, when you talk to them. see the temperature rise first and then come down or is there like a rhyme or reason for that? Um, so your temperature will fluctuate and that's the reason for uh, checking it frequently um, and not just one time and the reason is is that every time you become bacteremic so if you've got um, pneumonia and some of those bacteria translocate across your alveoli or your airways 
into the blood and you get a few of those little uh, uh, buggers in your bloodstream, that's going to elicit an immediate inflammatory response and a fever. But if they're not out there eliciting an inflammatory response, you may not have a fever. So you'll, when you get bacteremic or viremic, you'll spike a fever, your temperature will go up, and then it'll come back down, and it's okay. Then it'll go up, and it'll come back down. So your temperature typically does go up and down when you have an, in, when you have an infection. Um, uh, but if you are, uh, you know, if you're sick and staying sick, then your temperature may stay elevated. I don't know if that's what you were asking. Our protocol has a lower threshold to it, which we consider this to be a septic patient. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And it's just, why would someone be low, you know? Is their body given up? They've had two... Oh, you mean if they're... ...so long, now they're actually more sick, if they aren't mounting a temperature versus... But you're saying if it just isn't in the bloodstream, that wouldn't necessarily show it yet. Yeah, so um, uh, somebody can be septic and have a normal temperature for that reason, you know, that it only spikes when you're viremic, uh, particularly, or bacteremic, particularly earlier on. But um, the whole reason why old people are more prone to getting septic is because their immune system is compromised. They can't mount an inflammatory reaction uh, commensurate with the level of the infection they have. And so uh, old people um, can be sick as snot and not have a fever because they just are unable to mount that inflammatory response. It's worn out. And that's why they're getting septic. And what would cause someone to be uh, hypothermic, like below that 36 threshold? Um, you mean in a, in a septic patient? Um, I understand the yeah, yeah, it, and, and that's because your protocol, because um, uh, I, I think I misunderstood the question initially, but your question is regarding about um, why does your protocol have a sub-therapeutic temperature or a low temperature as a criteria? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I was just kind of curious. I understand the, the, you don't know why someone gets hyperthermic, but not... An elevated temperature, but not the low. Yeah, and so the the low temperature uh, happens much less frequently, but when they do have it, then that's a much worse prognosis, and uh, it, it is because um, because they uh, their um, not only their immune system, but their whole. Uh, thalamic system, their hypothalamus, and their thyroid, their whole endocrine system is all, you know, weak and depleted. Uh, they can't even mount the cortisol uh, to, that, you, that would typically initiate an inflammatory response. Um, so, yeah, hypothermia it can be a sign of sepsis. If you see somebody who's septic and hypothermic, they look sick as snot. You're not going to have somebody uh, sitting up uh, walkie-talkie who's hypothermic from sepsis. Uh, if they're hypothermic for sepsis, they're going to have it tattooed on their forehead.
So if you, so it's going to be kind of more the, the clinical presentation. You're not going to say, holy smokes, this guy looks super sick. I think he's septic. Nope, nope, his temperature's down. <laughs> no, he's good. Uh, I wanted to just go over, like Paul's talking about temperature. You know, it's like a heart rate greater than 90. Okay, maybe it's 96 or 95. Or respiratory rate, 20, or a little over 20. Okay, maybe it's, you know, 24. I feel like I am totally guilty of taking this patient BLS like a whole bunch of times, right? Because their pressure is, you know, 138 over 80, and I'm like, he's fine, he's kind of weird. Oh, I'm in blame, yeah, but I don't feel right. And you're like, okay, so we'll take him, right? But he'd maybe later find out, yeah, he was septic, he got a lower lobe pneumonia or something. Um, do these patients need ALS and hard fluid like every single time, or is there like some gray area there? If they're septic, yeah. If they're not, then no. Okay. And with a good pressure, you're still hard with the flu. Yeah. So um, uh, it uh, you you have to look at the numbers. If you uh, so as the example I like to give is that. <clears throat> Every college kid I see who comes in with strep throat meets severe sepsis criteria. Does that mean I'm putting a central line in and putting in the ICU? No, I'm giving them some penicillin and ibuprofen and sending them home. So um, the, the, uh, the point is, is that what we're trying to do by using this criteria is we're trying to use some objective criteria that is going to register in your brain, say, huh, these are the criteria, these are sepsis criteria. Do I think this guy is septic? Do I think this guy's gonna crump? Does he have a cough? Is there something that makes me think he's, is he persistently hypotensive? Is he persistently tachycardic? Is he persistently tachypnic? You know, so um, uh, those criteria are there to raise your index of suspicion but you need to decide whether you think that's related to an infection and sepsis or not. So my gal with strep throat who meets, you know, severe sepsis criteria, I know that she's going to be fine and I'm not going to admit her and, you know, and I'm going to, uh, you know, give her a popsicle and some penicillin and, and send her home, you know. So uh, the, and I, uh, so I think that's an important point with, not only these guidelines, but any guidelines that you see. These, um, you guys, because of the role that you're playing, you have to be a little bit more protocol driven, you know, because um, you're not intensivist. And so those numbers are there to help you guys say this is the objective criteria. You're responsible for measuring this and knowing what this what this means you're not responsible for um, uh, diagnosing them uh, but if you if you want to capture everybody and never miss a septic patient then yeah you should transport every one of those by ALS um, is that in reality is is that practical probably not and the same in the emergency department. There's a lot of people in the emergency department who meet those criteria that we don't go down the sepsis pathway 
um, because we know they're not septic just based on our clinical judgment. And that, as we'll talk about with code sepsis, um, they can meet all that criteria, and I can go in and see them and say, this guy isn't septic, cancel the code sepsis, because I, I don't think it's sepsis. You don't slow it down, but it's hard to speed it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, these are guidelines. You should recognize them. <clears throat> you should know them. You should consider it. If you've got a reason to think that it's not, then you're, um, then then that's okay. Uh, uh, one set of vital signs is usually not enough. You need to, you need to know a trend. Um, and, and but that does kind of segue a little bit into what I was going to say here: trending vitals. Wow. Just what we talked about. And then this is, this is kind of my pet peeve. Don't write down 16 for the respiratory rate. You'll piss me off if I see 16 because I know you're freaking lying. And you didn't count it. So count their damn respiratory rate. This is a pro tip for you guys. Um, is if you count somebody's respiratory rate and they're persistently tachypneic, they're probably sick. And why is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because what, what, uh, what controls your respiratory rate? It's not your oxygen level. It can be. But it's your carbon dioxide level. And why is your carbon dioxide level up? It's because you're acidotic. Well, why are you acidotic? Well, it could be because you're septic, or it could be because you're in DKA, or it could be, you know, from uh, uh, rhabdo. It could be for a lot of reasons. But, you know, somebody can't fake uh, tachypnea. Not for very long, yeah, yeah. Uh, so measure their respiratory rate. I know it's not sexy, but it can be important. Um, okay, so how are we doing here? We're doing okay. Uh, nobody's falling asleep or drooling on themselves yet. <clears throat> uh, so the last thing I'm going to talk about is uh, just going to make you guys aware of the efforts being placed at St. Joe's. This is the most current iteration uh, of trying to improve sepsis. And uh, what the whole focus on uh, the code sepsis is the early recognition and the early intervention. And that's why you guys are so important, is because our whole code sepsis is all focused in the first 45 minutes when they, when they show up. Um, and, uh, and our code sepsis doesn't talk anything about management and, uh, or any of that stuff. It's all about what we do in the first 45 minutes where we're really um, uh, emphasizing. So just so you know, if, you're, if you bring in somebody or if somebody is out in triage uh, and uh, they're putting in their vital signs, they're, they're required to chart what their heart rate is, respiratory rate, temperature. So all these SERS criteria... Um, and then it, it will give them a score to tell them whether uh, this person meets, meets criteria or not. So we have a, so if they meet this criteria, so if they have the SERS criteria, um, then uh, we will, or the, uh, 
they will, they meaning the nurses, before the docs are even involved, right out at triage, they've identified that this person is septic because they have met this, this sepsis criteria and they get this, they get this pop-up that says uh, sepsis criteria, initiate nurse uh, initiated sepsis orders. Um, and so the ball gets rolling. So it gets rolling before uh, a doc or anybody even sees them other than their initial initial triage. So this is where the emphasis is, just as it is with you guys, is early recognition of the septic patient. And um, one of the reasons why the code sepsis is happening now and uh, in this form is because the CMS is now watching the hospital and they are looking, they're reviewing the hospital to see if they are doing this. Are you correctly identifying all of your uh, septic patients? Are you doing the proper labs? Are you doing the proper evaluation? Are you managing them in accordance to uh, the protocol, which is this uh, sepsis care bundle? And, you know, with uh, with trying really hard not to go on, off on a tangent. Um, the CMS, which is Medicare Medicaid, <clears throat> they are, they have their checkbox and they're looking to see that if you did everything exactly as per protocol and if you did not do one of those things, they're not gonna pay you for any of it. So it's an all or nothing thing. If you don't get if you don't get everything right, we're not going to pay you for any of it. So you get zero dollars, and the hospital has to suck it up. So maybe that's part of the reason why the hospital has such a incentive to get this code sepsis uh, going. But um, uh, but that's kind of the requirement that um, that is hitting the hospital, and there are. They, they break it down into two different chunks. This is what needs to happen within three hours, and this is what needs to happen within uh, six hours. Um, the, our goal with um, antibiotics is less than 45 minutes. Um, the, that's one of the things that has to happen within this, this three-hour bundle. This three-hour bundle, uh, the, uh, as it says, is more about recognizing it and getting the ball rolling with the antibiotics and the fluid. And then the six hour has more to do with uh, how are we doing with our resuscitation? Are we on top? Are we staying on top of it? Do we need more fluids? Do we need pressors? Do we need to intubate? Um, so uh, so I, I'm going to talk a little bit. So this is a little bit of, uh, out of the scope of what uh, you guys need to know to you, do your jobs. But I'm just going to tell you what we're doing once they get to the hospital, just so you guys have an overview of, what, uh, of what's going on uh, with these septic patients. So um, when, uh, when a patient comes into the emergency department and they meet that SERS criteria and they get the little pop-up that says uh, they meet sepsis criteria, they call a code sepsis. And so what that means at St. Joe's is, <clears throat> Uh, there's um, uh, 
Everybody who's on that team is carrying a pager and the pager goes off and the people on that team are the nurse, the stat nurse, the NTL, the pharmacist, the phlebotomist, uh, radiology. So if there's a code sepsis uh, called, all of those people convene on the patient. And phlebotomists are there. The, the nurse puts in the nurse-initiated orders, so it doesn't have to come from a doc. Um, so it's kind of an offline order set saying this is what we're going to do for every septic patient. They order the blood work on everybody. The phlebotomist is already there. They're, they're drawing the blood work. Chest, the x-rays there, they're doing the x-ray. Pharmacy is involved. They're looking to see, because um, uh, usually these are complicated patients and they're older patients, so pharmacies looking to uh, see what are their allergies, what are their intolerances, what have they been treated for in the past, um, what is their source of infection, what is our protocol, our antibiotic protocol for that infection, so pharmacies involved. And so that all gets that all gets done um, uh, initially without any further intervention other than recognizing. And then my job as the doc is to, is to go in there and make my best guess as to what the source of the infection is. And you can usually get a good idea just based on your initial exam. Again, whether it's going to be a pneumonia, whether it's going to be in the belly, whether you think it's a cellulitis, whether you think it's... Um, uh, um, uh, a urinary tract infection, um, you know, and so once you've, uh, once I've made my best guess, then I'll tell the pharmacist, I think it's probably in his belly. I think it's probably pneumonia. And then the pharmacist will actually, uh, again, look at the patient, what their, uh, allergies are, um, and what our protocol is, whether they're at risk for aspiration, whether they're at risk for MRSA, and decide on what the appropriate antibiotic is for that person. This, um, this lactate is, uh, is a critical component for us. Um, and it's a critical component for us for diagnosing sepsis as well as a way to judge whether our resuscitation is working or not. So we'll order an initial lactate, and then we'll order a repeat lactate to see if it's, see if it's improving. So um, a lactate will be elevated if the tissues are being hypoperfused. And so just as you know, when um, you're out exercising and you're doing... Um, uh, anaerobic exercise and your muscles get sore because of the lactate, and we know it's not really lactate, it's the hydrogen, but um, you generate lactate when you are doing uh, anaerobic metabolism, which means that that part of the body is not getting enough blood supply to make its energy aerobically, so it has to resort to anaerobic metabolism. So lactate is an indication that something is not getting perfused. So at the tissue level, it's getting hypoperfused. And we know that if you are hypoperfused at the tissue level, you're going down the multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. You're hypoperfusing your kidneys uh, and they're gonna, you're gonna lose your kidneys if you don't do something about it. Uh, so the lactate is very important to us. Um, if your initial lactate is elevated, 
um, they're probably septic and they're probably early on, they're being hypoperfused, and that means you have to aggressively manage their fluids. And the way I typically do it is, however much fluid I think they need, give them three liters, and then recheck a lactate after those three liters and see what our lactate is doing. Our lactate should be getting better if I've perfused those organs, and if it hasn't moved or it's going up, then I'm behind the power curve and I need to be more aggressive with my fluid or maybe I need to put them on pressors. But so the lactate for us is a very important measure to determine whether they are getting perfused at the, at the tissue level. Because you can have kind of a soft blood pressure that maybe doesn't meet criteria, but their lactate is elevated. So they are, they're under resuscitated. Um, and our, uh, the sepsis bundle talks about 30 mLs per kilogram of fluid as your initial fluid bolus. And that is uh, ideal body weight. And so in order for us to meet CMS criteria, we have to order 30 mLs per kilogram. If I don't, then I have to chart why I'm not because they're in heart failure or whatever. Uh, but one, one trick around it is that although I have to give 30 mLs per kilogram in order to meet this criteria, they don't tell me how fast I have to give it. So if I'm worried that I'm gonna put them in fluid overload, I can give that fluid, but give it over a longer period of time. But that's kind of part of the, uh, kind of the management. Um, and this just kind of is just a graphic of <clears throat> showing that if this is the mortality, the longer you're hypotensive, the less likely you are to survive. So fixing that hypotension is critical. And this, was, this is just a graph, again, talking about how critical it is to give uh, the antibiotics early. So just kind of a graphic representation of what we're talking about, fluid antibiotics makes a difference. Um, and so, Kind of as I talked about, we try to get our antibiotics. The sepsis bundle uh, from CMS says less than an hour. We try to shoot for less than 45 minutes, try to get the antibiotics in uh, early. Um, and again, aggressive about the fluids. It doesn't matter as much whether you give lactate or normal saline, although a lot of people like to argue about that and kind of it's gone back and forth over the years. Uh, lac um, uh, Ringer's lactate is kind of in vogue now, maybe a little bit better, but it's not compatible with a lot of other things, and so it's problematic. Maybe if you've got a central line in and you've got three ports to choose from, maybe you can do it. But, it, um, so it, it, but in reality, it probably doesn't matter that much. Um, and then the six-hour bundle uh, has more to do with, did you repeat that lactate? Is the lactate trending up or down? Um, depending on what your lactate showed, did you respond appropriately? And by now, you should have fixed their hypotension. You should have fixed it either with the fluids, or if not, then they should be on pressors. Um, and uh, again, this just kind of talks about your mortality rate um, using blood pressure and lactate as a measure of whether you're perfusing or not. So getting those organs perfused as quickly as possible, as early as possible, um, makes a big difference. 
Um, okay, that's it. 205. Um, so, you know, I guess uh, a lot of information there, but the, uh, I probably said it enough that I don't need to reiterate that the, the main thing I want you to, to walk away from is understanding that uh, if a patient is septic, even though they're walkie-talkie and look fine to you, um, their risk for dying of sepsis is high if you don't recognize it and you don't intervene. And you have to rely on your objective criteria to raise your index of suspicion because they may not look like that heart attack guy who's dying in front of you, but they're dying at the same rate. Um, and uh, so uh, recognizing it, knowing what the criteria is, uh, initiating that initiating that fluid resuscitation as you're bringing them in, communicating when you bring them in that you're concerned about septic, so that they head down the right pathway, that they get in the right lane to get uh, uh, treated. What is your favorite presser once you decide you've given fluid, you know that they're not fluid responsive, their pressure has not been coming up with the first couple of, uh, of you know, boluses of normal saline? You like more epi? Like, is it? You suggest like in something else? Like, what's your, what's your favorite? You know, uh, uh, I miss the days when you had like six different pressors, and you got to kind of geek out about which one was alpha and which was beta and which was alpha two. And <laughs> now it's it's all norepi. Yeah. So the the uh, norepi is what we give, um, and. Uh, and again, depending on uh, whether they respond to the norepi or how sick they are, uh, vasopressin. So there's a, um, a couple different ways to give vasopressin um, in terms of, again, if I got the guy who's sick as not and he's dying in front of me, I'm going to get the norepi and the vasopressin going at the same time. The other option is to start with the, the norepi. When you're getting up into higher doses and that's not having an effect, then put the, the vasopressin on there. And um, if you get to the point to where you've given vasopressin, you're maxed out your nor epi, um, then maybe you'll add an epi drip onto that. But uh, if you get to that point, their prognosis is pretty poor. But so the short answer is uh, nor epi. We used to carry vasopressin and give it during codes. Yeah. Yeah. Concern with heart failure and giving, you know, and overloading with fluids. Um, this might be a totally dumb thought. Like, is there ever any thought with? Okay, this I believe this person's in, in sepsis, but they also um, have some pretty severe CHF. Like to do to try to do both at the same time. So fluids plus something to kind of positively pressure the airway to keep more fluid from building up. Yeah, no, no, and that's, um, I mean, that's, a, uh, that's the brilliant thing about CPAP is that uh, 
it can be helpful when you are either in fluid overload or you're worried about doing fluid overload. So if you're in a situation where um, you're fluid resuscitating somebody and you're worried that you're putting them in failure or they might actually already be in failure and now you're, you're, you're stuck with this dilemma, um, it's uh, doing CPAP in that situation is, is a fine idea. So it's um, the, the problem with the CHF person who is also septic, it's not a, they may be total body water high. It's not a, it's not a fluid problem, it's a distribution problem. They got it on the wrong side of the heart and it's not doing them any good on that side of the heart. It needs to be on the other side of the heart in order to do them, to do them any good. Um, so it's, it's kind of a distribution problem and it's, it's one of the more challenging things to manage. But a patient who does have congestive heart failure, who is septic, um, and particularly somebody who's got a low EF or somebody who is at uh, high risk of congestive heart failure, or if they're showing evidence of congestive heart failure, those are the people will intubate early. They'll do, they'll do better. Yeah. But, uh, uh, doing CPAP early is a good idea too. And particularly in these kind of patients, um, they're the perfect patient for CPAP because if you do all this right and they respond, they can, they can be looking 100% better in an hour or two. And so, you know, you didn't need to intubate them to get you over that hump, but the CPAP for an hour or two can be brilliant and can and help them get over the hump. And so, um, uh, yeah, doing that early is a, is a good idea. And um, uh, it's uh, metabolically quite taxing to have sepsis. And if you take the work of breathing away from them, and people who have COPD or CHF, they can be spending more than 50% of their energy just trying to breathe. And so if you are able to unburden them off of that, then they can use their resources where they need them. So, yeah, I think uh, if you're thinking CPAP, do it. I, I just want to make sure I didn't miss the, the nugget there. So are you saying no fluid and CPAP for the CHFer uh, that is septic? Or are we saying fluid with CPAP? Fluid with CPAP, with, yep. With so um, just because they're in CHF uh, is not a reason to not give them fluids. And um, and in particular, uh, the septic shock patient. So if they're hypotensive, so it can happen that they're hypotensive and in congestive heart failure. Um, it, that can happen. Again, it's a distribution problem. It's on the wrong side of the heart because the heart it can't get it to where it needs to be. Um, so uh, uh, it may seem ironic, but you would have to give fluid to somebody who has CHF if they're in septic shock. But you better be backing up the right side of the heart with CPAP. Yeah, it's because our protocol uh, says if they're hypotensive under systolic of 90, to not do CPAP. But then in CHF, if you think that they're volume depleted, you can do like a 250 cc bolus and, or go straight to the norepi or a push dose epi is kind of what our protocol is. That's my. So say it again. So what was your what your so you've got a blood pressure parameter there for the use of CPAP? Well, if we have a 
Uh huh. And then a little bit down the protocol, it talks about if they're hypotensive, consider doing a 250cc bolus and then evaluating. Um, and then for the uh, CHF protocol, it talks about, you know, or sepsis, excuse me, it says give two liters of fluid unless contraindicated by CHF exacerbation or um, diastasis. Uh huh. In case to norepi or for the sepsis protocol, it's the two liters, but every 500 cc's is when we reevaluate. Do yeah, yeah, up to two liters. Yeah. Is your protocol written that way, where you give a 500 cc bolus and you reevaluate? Yeah. Oh, it does. Oh, I thought I just made that up. It says normal saline bolus parentheses adult two liters comma pediatric 20 cc's per kg unless history of dialysis dependence or CHF, and then it just says a. Reassess blood pressure and breath sounds after 500 cc increments. After each show. Yeah. Okay. So I'd ag I'd agree with that, and I and I also think that um, the uh, the renal failure patients uh, are the hard one of the hardest ones to manage. You know, because um, they uh, same thing. They're fluid overloaded, <clears throat> but um, uh, uh, but yet if they're hypotensive because they're septic. You need to give them. You need to give them fluid. Seems like another balance point here is intubating a hypotensive patient is oh, yeah. a high level of morbidity with or mortality mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to find that balance of getting fluid in the right place, not overloading the thoracic cavity, because now we have to tube someone who's still hypotensive, and it just seems. That's why you make the big bucks, dude. Yeah, yeah. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Yeah. yeah. So, Dr. White, you would, this lecture that you did before kind of really went against a lot of our thoughts about um, someone in CHF and still giving fluid. So, um, you had talked about give fluid, even if you're concerned that they have congestive heart failure uh, because their sepsis is going to kill them and they need to be bumped up with some fluid. You didn't say two liters or anything, but just being able to give fluid even in the face of CHF because they need the fluid if they're hypotensive. And, um, and that was so hard for a lot of us medics to wrap our head around. But we hear rouse, you know, how do we ever give fluid? And uh, the point was that if they're, if they're hypotensive and they're septic, they're on the way down, they're gonna die. And you need to splint that pressure up a little bit at least with some fluid in hopes that they will that they will then um, be able to respond with a better pressure and perfusion and everything. But if they don't, they're like, you guys gave 500 on the first bit of that protocol in our sepsis protocol, and, they, and their pressure did not come up, then we should all be thinking immediately that we should be getting norepi to try to, you know. Get a little, get a little squeeze going, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Add that to it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and that's probably a good point that I don't think I mentioned, um, that uh, if you are in failure, and you're hypotensive, as I said, it's a distribution problem. It's on the wrong side of the heart. It's on the wrong side of the heart because the heart isn't doing its job. So maybe you could help that heart do its job a little bit by doing a little norepi and trying to get a little more squeeze. <clears throat> okay, guys, I'm going to go to work. Yeah.